I'm going to preach if it's all the same to you. Okay, good. So I want to start with this. This is the second week in a sermon series that I have been looking forward to for a really long time. We are going to be studying the conversion story of Paul as we see it in Acts chapter 9. And at this point in our story, we haven't met Paul yet. We know Saul of Tarsus. We know Saul of Tarsus. Uh, Paul's or, or Saul's story, it has the power to change our story. It has the power to change our lives. And uh, as we get started, I want to tell you about the time that the trustees decided they wanted to put a deck on the back of the parsonage. Several years ago, the trustees decided they wanted to put a, trust, or a deck on the back of the parsonage. And, and I lived there, and so when they said, what do you think about this? I said, I think that's a fantastic idea. So we decided to do it the first week of December, and that was really good. And uh, so there's a whole big group of guys shows up on this Saturday morning, and they've all got their tools, right? They're carrying tool boxes full of stuff, and there's heavy machinery, and, and another guy has a truck big enough to carry all of the lumber, and I show up, and I've got my tool, right? I brought my screwdriver. Turns out it wasn't even the right kind. They needed Phillips, and I had flathead. So, you know, I've got my tool. I bought lunch that day. That was my major contribution. And so uh, Dustin Brown was leading the project. As he's, a, he's in construction. He knows what he's doing. And throughout the day, he's kind of giving us different tasks and telling us what to do. And most of my tasks revolved around carry this message here or take this scrap to the scrap pile or hand this to somebody. You know, and so they gave me jobs commensurate with my skill and ability. And I performed admirably. Here's what they never did. They never said, do this highly technical construction thing or this easy construction thing. They just knew. You know, right? There are two kinds of people that build a deck, right? You know the two kinds of people that build a deck? Those who can build a deck and those who can't. And I very firmly am entrenched in category two. And so they knew this, and so as the day's going on, Dustin, he's a good leader. He, he's trying to find ways to keep me involved. And as the day's winding down, guys are starting to leave. Dustin, in a, in a, in a stroke of genius, finds this job that I am capable of doing. So he looks at me and another buddy of mine, uh, whose name I'm not going to mention except to say that his name's Nathan Bills. Um, and neither one of us are really, we're very much category two of deck builders, like we're the can't do it kind of guys, okay? And so Dustin, Dustin looks at us, and here's what he says. He says, I want you guys to screw the balusters in. And I looked at him, and I said, I absolutely know what a baluster is. Can you just remind me real quick and, and point to one? How many of them will there be? And so he points to, to what a baluster is. And, and it very quickly uh, became apparent to me that, that spacing was going to be important when it comes to screwing in balusters. And I thought, well, you know, you want them to be pretty uniform all the way around. And so I don't want to have to get a tape measurer and measure six inches. And then six inches, that's going to get exhausting. I need a system that's going to be much more efficient than that. And so what I did was I screwed together two pieces of wood and I said, okay, this is the perfect spacing. And so I'll just put it up here at the top, screw in the top and slide it down to the bottom, screw in the bottom, then move it. Boom, 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 boom. I'll tell you what, I was like a NASCAR pit crew. 
We're efficient out there, right? And, and it was about halfway through screwing the balusters in, which I now feel very proficient at, that Dustin Brown comes up behind me. I think Justin was next to him. And they said, you might want to take a step back and look. Turns out they were getting a little crooked. Turns out it's kind of, I, crooked's a little bit of an understatement. You know what palm trees look like in a hurricane? Here's the problem. My guide was a little bit bigger at the top than it was at the bottom, ever so slightly. Ever so slightly larger at the top than it was at the bottom. And so post one goes in like this. And post two goes in like this. Post three goes in like this. And by the time we get to post 768,204, but because the difference was so microscopic, so tiny, I couldn't see it as I looked at it straight on, the damage got more and more severe. It got more and more obvious as time went on to the point when somebody says, hey, you need to take a step back and look at this. Here's why I bring all this up. When your system of measurement is wrong, everything will be wrong. When your system of measurement is wrong, everything will be wrong. And that's the lesson that Saul of Tarsus learned on the road to Damascus. Last week, Chase did a fantastic job of introducing us to Saul of Tarsus. And, and I just want to recap just a little bit if you weren't able to be here with us. Here's, here's what Chase was telling us. Saul of Tarsus was a big deal. He was a big deal. He was a student of the greatest teacher alive. His name was Gamaliel. Uh, and the Jewish education system, it didn't work like our education system works. Right? If you think about going off to college, you might be in a lecture hall with 80 other students, and there's a 90% chance that the professor will never know your name the entire semester. Right? That's not how the Jewish education system worked. A rabbi would only have a few students that he would train intentionally. If you want to get an idea of this, uh, think about this. How many disciples did Jesus have? Go ahead and interact with me. It's not a trick question. Twelve is a very good answer. Not a trick question. I realize I do that to you sometimes. Jesus had twelve disciples and they went everywhere with him and they learned as he taught. They saw how he acted. That is what the Jewish education system looked like. And so Gamaliel, this master teacher, would have just a few disciples who would follow him everywhere, who would go where he went, would see how he taught, would see how he lived and acted and interacted with people. There's this expression that was common at the time. It was called being covered in the dust of your rabbi. It meant that you walked behind him so closely that when, when he took a step, the dust from him stepping would get all over you. And that's what they did. It wasn't a people uh, filling a lecture hall. It was a select group of students that would follow their teacher everywhere. And Saul of Tarsus, Saul of Tarsus was selected by the greatest teacher alive to be his student. Saul didn't get in to Harvard Saul got into a Harvard that only selected 12 students. 
He could have done anything in the Jewish world. He could have done anything in the Jewish world, not just because of his education. It would be appropriate to further think of Saul's family as aristocracy. Right? I don't know if you, if you liked the show Downton Abbey. Leah and I really liked the show Downton Abbey. Right? There, in Europe, there was, there was royalty and there was titles and there was a privileged elite class and, and you would be called a, a duke or an earl or a duchess and, and all of these things had important meanings. You were a step above everybody else in society and it's likely that Saul of Tarsus and his family were the ancient equivalent of aristocracy. They were powerful. They were successful. They were in all likelihood incredibly wealthy. And, and why do I say that? Because in the passage that Chase looked at last week, um, Saul describes himself as a Roman citizen. He describes himself as a Roman citizen. There's only a few ways to be born uh, a Roman, or to be a Roman citizen. The first and the easiest is to be born in Rome or a Roman-controlled province. Saul wasn't. So what happened for him was that his family had to buy their Roman citizenship. It was purchased. And can I tell you, the only way to purchase Roman citizenship is at an incredibly high price. You have to be able to afford to be a Roman citizen. And Paul's family was able to afford that luxury. Paul could have done anything in the Jewish world that he wanted to. By every measurement, he was a great man. He was a star pupil. He was smarter. He was more charismatic, more zealous than any of his peers. By every measurement in the Jewish world, he was great. Even in his work, even in his work, Saul was incredibly successful. Chase pointed out that Saul was going to Damascus with letters from the Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem. And he was going to hunt down Christians who had escaped Jerusalem, fled to Damascus. Saul was going to be a bounty hunter and bring them back to Jerusalem to face trial and eventually execution. This would have been an incredibly prestigious job in the Jewish world. And why did they send Saul? Why not somebody else? Sure, he's successful. He comes from the right family. He's got the right education. He's charismatic. He's zealous. Why do they send Saul? I think it's because he already had experience. And it's because Saul already had experience doing this work. Acts chapter 7. It's the account of the stoning of Stephen. Here's what we read. Then they, that's the religious leaders, they put their hands over their ears and they began shouting and they rushed at him and they dragged him out of the city and they began to stone him. His accusers, they took off their coats and they laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. And can I just tell you, when they say, when the, when the text says they put their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul, Saul was not the coat check for that day. Right? He was not helping out holding the coats. That was a sign. That was a symbol. That was significant in that culture. What they were doing is they were saying they were laying their coats at the man at the feet of the man who was in charge. That was their way of saying, that was their symbol for showing this is the guy who is in charge of everything that is happening here today. Saul was orchestrating that event. He was responsible for the stoning of Stephen. And now Saul is sent off to Damascus to find and apprehend Christian fugitives 
who have escaped so he can return them to Jerusalem for trial and execution. Now, I want to put that in the proper context because for us, it's easy to look at that and say, oh my goodness, that is horrific. That is terrible. But if we look at this through the lens of a Jewish religious leader, they wouldn't say that's terrible. They would say that is important. That is important work he's doing. What an honor. Saul has the right background. He's got the right family. He's got the right education. He's even got the right job. By every measurement in the Jewish world, Saul of Tarsus was a great man. And now if we measure that against the Jewish religious system, his social status, his talent, his Roman citizenship, his job, Saul was a great man. But take a look what happens. Take a look at what happens when this great man meets Jesus. This is Acts chapter 9. We'll start in verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath, and he was eager to kill the Lord's followers, so he went to the high priest. And he requested letters addressed to the synagogue in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. And as he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him, and he fell to the ground. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, who are you, Lord? He said, and the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. So as Saul walks to Damascus, he walked with the confidence of success, of privilege, of prestige, of power. But all of that changes when he encounters Jesus. He fell to the ground in terror, none of his accomplishments having any say, any power, any meaning in the presence of God. Kind of reminds me of the song we just got done singing, doesn't it? I will not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom. I suspect in that moment, Saul would have been able to relate with Solomon's words from Ecclesiastes. Meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. My fame, my wealth, my education, all of it is meaningless. In an instant, Saul learned that he had the wrong system of measurement. Just like a guy who's building his deck. Wrong system of measurement will throw everything else off. Didn't matter how smart he was. Didn't matter how successful he was. It only mattered how much he could look like Jesus. It only mattered how much like Jesus he was. And I believe that's a lesson that Saul learned that day on the road to Damascus. And it's a lesson he never forgot. That's why in Ephesians chapter 4 he writes these words. Christ Himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip His people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, listen to this, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Here's what he's saying. That's kind of a, an interesting statement to try to translate into our uh, common, thoughtful understanding. Here's what he's saying, though. The only meaningful way to measure your life is to Jesus Christ. 
The only meaningful way to measure your life is to Jesus Christ. Doesn't matter how much money you have. Doesn't matter how many degrees you have. It doesn't matter how many people report to you. It doesn't matter how many acres you farm. It doesn't matter how many people attend the church you serve. It doesn't matter how much better you are than your neighbor. The only meaningful way to measure your life is to Jesus Christ. And maybe you're going, well, wait a minute, Tony. You mean like if I'm going to compare myself to somebody, I should compare myself to Jesus? Is that what you're saying? It's exactly what I'm saying. Exactly what I'm saying. We all have this, this really convenient tendency to compare ourselves to other people, but only people that we perceive as not as good as us. What Paul's saying here is, if you're going to compare yourself to anybody, compare yourself to Jesus. And maybe you're going, well, wait a minute, hold on. That, that's slightly problematic for me because... If I were to compare myself to Jesus, then I wouldn't, wouldn't really measure up, would I? You're right. Paul came to the same conclusion. Here's how he says it. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When we talk about measuring by the wrong standard, that's what we're saying. We're saying sinned. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He learned that lesson on the road to Damascus too. Saul had been measuring his life in the wrong way. The moment on the road to Damascus is where Jesus pointed out to him how wrong he was. Maybe today you need to examine the way that you measure your life. Just take a moment to consider how do you measure your life. Some people measure their lives by how much they earn how many people report to them, how much power they have, how much respect they command, how many people they know when they go out in public by their name recognition, by the car they drive. Or maybe, maybe we'll, we'll change it up a little bit. Maybe it's the number of followers or friends that you have on social media. The number of likes you get on a post. By the clothes your kids wear. By the number of degrees on the wall. Or here's the most dangerous one how we compare to other people. Saul played those games too. Saul played those games too, and when he encountered Jesus, he realized that none of those things make him more like Jesus. None of those things made him more like Jesus. They weren't inherently bad things. They just weren't good ways to measure your life. He learned that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He learned that. And he learned that the only measurement worth anything is the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Saul learned that the only meaningful way to measure your life is to Jesus. And for Saul, that was kind of terrifying. It's kind of a terrifying thing for him to realize because Saul's error didn't result in a crooked baluster. It resulted in an angry God. Look at what Jesus says. He says, As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice, from saying, voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's interesting how Jesus words that sentence, isn't it? He says, why are you persecuting me? 
Saul was certainly persecuting Jesus' followers, followers of the way. He certainly wanted to hunt down Christians and, and imprison them and return them to Jerusalem to face imprisonment and eventually execution. Saul certainly wanted to do that. Saul certainly, if the church would have been nomenclature that was used commonly then, he certainly would have wanted to destroy the church. Saul didn't have Jesus in his mind. When he went to Damascus, Jesus was not one of the people he was looking for. He wouldn't have knocked on anybody's door and said, have you seen Jesus? I'm looking for him. I want to take him back to Jerusalem. So it's interesting that Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? It would have made sense if he would have said, why are you persecuting my church? Why are you persecuting my people? Why are you persecuting followers? Why are you persecuting my disciples? But Jesus doesn't say any of that. He says, why are you persecuting me? What do we need to learn from that? Persecution isn't rooted in killing Christians. Persecution is rooted in sin. Let me say it a different way. Write this part down. Persecution doesn't come from a desire to kill Christians. Persecution comes from a lack of control over our desires. Over a lack of control over our desires. It's easy for us to look at Jesus talking to Saul and say, yeah, yes, Saul, why are you persecuting Jesus? What do you have to say for yourself? Reality is, Jesus rightfully asks us the same question. Here's what I mean. You ever heard the song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us? Say yes. Okay, very good. There's this part that says, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. It was my sin that held him there. Your sin that held him there. Jesus went to the cross because of the sins I have committed and the sins you have committed. He died because I measured my life by the wrong standards. I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And here's what Jesus had to say to me. Tony, Tony. Why do you persecute me? Why do you persecute me? And not just me. To the man or woman who works late every night neglecting their family, Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? To the man whose eyes linger too long on a woman who isn't his wife, why are you persecuting me? To the woman whose eyes linger on a man who isn't her husband, why are you persecuting me? To the person who spends more than they make, why are you persecuting me? To the person who's at home but spends the whole night on their phone ignoring their family, why are you persecuting me? To the person who's more comfortable judging than encouraging, why are you persecuting me? To the man on his way to Damascus to hunt down and execute Christians, why are you persecuting me? See, Jesus didn't just say that to Saul of Tarsus. He says that to all of humanity. Praise God, that's not the end of the story, right? 
Because if that story ended with Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I don't think I'd be here today. It doesn't end there though. It doesn't end there at all. The reality is Saul had a past. I have a past. You have a past. We've all spent time measuring by the wrong standard and for each of us, that has had far-reaching repercussions in our lives. And the changes have been so gradual that up close, in the moment, we weren't able to see what our actions were doing to our lives and to the lives of the people around us. And all the while, things are just getting a little and a little more crooked until somebody says, I think you might need to step back and take a look. We all have a past. We all have things that we regret. We all have people that we've hurt. The most beautiful thing about our faith, the most beautiful thing about a relationship with Jesus Christ is that our past doesn't define our present or our future. I've made plenty of mistakes. I've sinned against people I love and people I'll never know. And my past doesn't define my future because that I have accepted that I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I've accepted that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And it's not about me being better. It's about me admitting that I can't do it. And you see, we're not always comfortable admitting that. We're not always comfortable admitting that we need help. We have a pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps mentality. And it's noble and right to do it alone. But here's the problem. If I want to be forgiven of my sins, I need help from God. It's not that help from God would make it easier. It's not that help from God would make it more manageable. It's not that help from God would certainly exacerbate the process. It's that if we want forgiveness of our sins, we need help from God. That's exactly what Jesus offers us. The Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. And can I just tell you that Jesus came what He did to do? He did what He came to do. Now the only thing that stands between us and God is the sin within us. If we don't realize that we need Jesus as our Savior, we'll never ask Him. If we don't realize that we're measuring by the wrong standard, we'll never change. And maybe today is the moment on the road to Damascus for you. You've been okay as long as you compare yourself to people who don't have it as together as you do. You've been okay as you've not confronted your sin. You've been okay as long as you don't examine your life too closely. But today, as you think about measuring your life against the standard of Jesus, it gets a little more uncomfortable. As you think about what it means to persecute Christ, it gets a little bit more uncomfortable. I know it's uncomfortable to admit that you don't have it all together, that you might need help, but can I encourage you? Can I encourage you with something? If you look around this room, if you look around this room, for every person in here, 
Our attendance this morning is our confession that we need help to. This church isn't full of perfect people. This church is full of people with real life conversion stories. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. The reason we're here is because we need Him to seek and save us too. I'm going to close with this. Many years ago in England, there were two distinguished antagonists of the Christian faith. Lord Littleton and Gilbert West. They were scholars. And they, they decided between themselves that their conviction was to destroy Christianity and see the church fail, and that together, with their scholarly prowess, they could do it. And so they met together and they decided that they were going to each devote the next 12 months of their life to researching a rebuttal of the two things in Christianity that they thought they could use to destroy all of it. The first was the resurrection of Jesus. They said if we can destroy and disprove the resurrection of Jesus, there's no sense in having a faith. The second, if we can disprove the conversion of Paul, there's no sense in them having a faith. And so they both set out. They were each going to spend the next year trying to disprove both of them. And at the end of a year, they would get back together and, and compile their research and their writing and, and produce a book that they would use to discredit Christianity. So they do that. And at the end of the year, they get back together and they'd made a surprising discovery. Over the previous 12 months, both of them had been converted to Christianity. Both of them had. And I love that. I love that two men who were dead set against destroying the church saw in themselves Saul of Tarsus. And when they were confronted with truth, it changed their lives. They realized that they'd been measuring by the wrong standard. And they asked God, for His help to forgive them of their sins. Church, one of the reasons that we do what we do, no, the, the, the primary reason that we do what we do, the reason that all of these people got here early this morning to practice, to make sure that the songs they're singing are the best that they can be. One of the reasons that people came here yesterday to prepare communion that our Sunday school teachers got here early to prepare their lessons and get things organized. The reason that there are kids, uh, there are teachers in the kids' classrooms right now. The reason that we do all of that. The reason that we're going to two services in December is very simply this: we want every Sunday to be that Sunday for somebody. We want every Sunday to be the Sunday when somebody realizes their need for Jesus. Like Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus or Lord Littleton and Gilbert West. We want every Sunday to be that Sunday for somebody. Those two men that they learned they've been measuring by the wrong standard and affected every part of their lives. They learned that they'd been persecuting Jesus and it was their sin that held Him there. And maybe today you've learned the same lessons. Not an easy thing to learn, but can I remind you, it was my sin that held him there? That's not how the song ends. It 
was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. Here's how it ends. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. There is a definite hope in Jesus Christ. We don't have to wonder if His sacrifice was enough. We don't have to, we don't have to turn in the paperwork and hope it's all approved. We admit our need for Jesus as Savior. We repent and we are baptized. And His dying breath gives us life. And we know that it is finished. If you need to confess Jesus as your Savior today, as your Lord, and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of Holy Spirit, I think today is a great day to do that. But I know that, that some of you may not be there yet. you still got a lot of questions. you still got a lot of things that you need to work through. I'm going to ask you to respond to this invitation in a different way. Right up here. Don't worry. You don't have to start panicking. I want to ask you to respond right here. Okay? Um, if you're interested in pursuing faith, if you're interested in knowing more, I want you to commit right now in your mind to coming back for the rest of this series. We're going to continue to walk through the conversion story of Paul. Just, just commit to coming back. You don't have to talk to anybody. You don't have to stand up. Right? You don't have to do anything. Just come back. Or maybe you've got more questions that you need answers to and you're ready to ask some of those questions. Commit to stand after church next Sunday for our baptism class. Okay? It would be a really great place to ask those questions. But if you need to make a decision today, to ask God's help for the forgiveness of your sins. I think you should do that. I'll be right here. And right now, let's stand together and sing.